0: the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe, again, that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor, please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider of choice. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Dr. Theodore R. Johnson in the house. He's the author of an outstanding, challenging book that could not be better timed. When the stars begin to fall, overcoming racism and renewing the promise of America. Ted Johnston is a senior fellow and director of the fellows program at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law, where he undertakes research on race, politics and American identity. Prior to joining the Brennan Center, he was a national fellow at New America and a commander in the United States Navy, serving for 20 years in a variety of positions, including as a White House fellow in the first Obama administration and a speechwriter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. His work has appeared in prominent national publications across the political spectrum, including The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The National Review, and others, and recently he joined the bipartisan, or perhaps it's nonpartisan, team at The Bulwark in Washington. Theodore Johnson, congratulations on the brilliant new book, and welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank
1: you so much. I really appreciate you having me.
0: Ted Johnson, let's start at the beginning, and you talk about this a little bit, How did you finally make a decision to write this book? Writing a book is a very big undertaking. You mentioned in passing that it represents your thinking across your entire life. But what made you take that big step to actually do it?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I wish I could say that um, I just had an epiphany one day and uh, the insights dawned on me and I had no choice but to, uh, to scribble them down on stone tablets and bring them down mm-hmm. from on high. But instead what happened, um, it was I finished my doctoral degree and my dissertation was on Black American voting behavior. And I was exploring how both parties could compete more vigorously for the black vote and the benefits that competition would have on our democracy. The problem is I finished that dissertation in 2016. And later that year, Donald Trump won the presidency and people cared less about black voters and cared more about the sort of white working class, Rust Belt, Appalachian um, voters. So my dissertation had fallen sort of it was no longer timely. My my part of the electorate wasn't the um, wasn't didn't have the focus uh, on it that it would have had, say, if Hillary Clinton had won because of her uh, strong um, lead with black voters. So what I decided to do then was instead of making this a book about voting behavior, I decided to make it a book about what a very lopsided, very lopsided voting behavior of black Americans tells us about the role that racism continues to play in America. And instead of doing this from the the viewpoint of, um, of trying to like chastise the country for not doing enough to address racial inequality, I wanted to write a patriotic book about the problems racism presents, but our ability to overcome those problems if we're willing to stand together as fellow countrymen and hold the state accountable for not Uh, delivering on its promises, for being in breach of the social contract. And uh, as you said, um, there's probably not a topic more timely than the role that race plays in our society. And uh, I I wanted to offer uh, a contribution to the discussion that leans into a love for America that um, I don't think is prevalent enough in these kinds of, of discussions.
0: Well, you succeed very well. And I know it's been very well reviewed. Your book is built upon a challenge you lay out. And I will quote this. Racism is an existential threat to America. What does that mean? And what are the implications of it?
1: Yeah. And so, you know, existential threat, I think this is probably like two words that are really overused in a lot of our, our political um, r- discourse today. Um, and and w- what I don't mean by this is that the country risks falling into another civil war unless we find a way to fix racism or racial inequality. What I am saying is that the promise of America, and I define the promises of, of, Amer- of America as the second paragraph in the Declaration of Independence, that we're all created equal, that we all have uh, unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed, if that is the promise of America, then there's nothing about those things that are compatible with racism, with racial inequality. So um, the the idea that racism is an existential threat to America is really the idea that structural racism uh, or the racial inequality it presents is an existential threat to the American ideals. Um, We have a history that has proven we can live sometimes quite comfortably with racism and continue to prosper and function. We had many, many decades of slavery, many, many decades of of Jim Crow laws, and we still managed to grow and and grow our economy, our military strength, et cetera. So the nation can sometimes survive racism. The Civil War suggests that that's not fails proof. Um, But the argument in the book is that When we have public policy, when we've got structures in our society that produce racial inequality, um, then that cannot coexist with the promise of America that we are created equal um, with these unalienable rights and government works for us. So either we address the ills that racial inequality presents and we hew closer to the promise or um, we don't address the the challenges that racism presents, and then our commitment to the promise of of America appears to be more superficial than I, I believe it
0: actually is. It brought to my mind the line in the declaration that you may have right in front of you, but it is the line about also taking into account the opinions of the world a bit. And it strikes me that one piece of this that you're challenge points to, is that the United States, if we're going to be that city on a hill that uh, John Winthrop talked about, I believe, and has been repeated by politicians ever since, uh, the world will look at how we actually do our own business before they take us seriously for our proclaiming our ideals and interests worldwide. And that seems to be something that's a little bit neglected in recent times.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, look, when you, are a nation that tells the world that democracy is the best form of governance, that uh, people deserve to be free, and that government works for the people, not the other way around, and that you believe that um, a nation should be founded on the idea of equality and liberty. And at the same time you say these things, you are actively oppressing or excluding some significant portion of your population it makes you appear to be a hypocrite on the world stage. It makes your your word less trustworthy. Um, It harms your reputation and your brand. And so it actually becomes a a little bit of a security interest for the United States to live according to its principles, because otherwise those nations that contest us, uh, such as the Soviet Union during the, the Cold War, or even today, Russia and China, um, every time we get on our high horse and say democracy is the way forward, they can point to the inequality in our system and say, is that what democracy looks like? Is is, is the lynching Black veterans considered democracy? Is uh, you know the murder of George Floyd considered democracy? Um, if that's democracy, they can turn to the rest of the world and say, why on earth would you want this form of government that actively excludes or subjugate some part of its, its uh, population. So it is in the national security interest, the foreign policy interests of the United States to be who it says it is, which is the nation that believes in equality, liberty and opportunity. And uh, whenever we fall short of that, especially along racial lines, not only does it um, point to the hypocrisy uh, but it also presents national security vulnerabilities. And we can point to the Revolutionary War where the British were making appeals to enslaved Black people to betray their slave masters and fight for Britain in, in exchange for their freedom. They made the same promises in the War of 1812. Um, they were the, uh, in World War One and World War II, nations we were at war with, especially in World War II, between Germany, Italy, and Japan, they used to drop leaflets over segregated troops And to say, why are you over here fighting us when um, back home your people are being abused by your own countrymen? Why are you defending that country? Vietnam did the same thing. Korea did the same thing. So it's and Russia did the same thing, frankly, in the 2016 election and the propaganda it put forward. So other nations exploit the racism in our system, the racial inequality in our system as a weakness, um, as as a way to try to divide the people, but also undermine our democracy and prevent us from securing our interests.
0: Ted Johnson, you talk a lot about patriotism, and that's become almost a controversial word. I noticed uh, Stephen Smith, a professor at Yale, who wrote a book in defense of patriotism, but it's a term that's used reluctantly and seems to be a bit orphaned by a lot of the more activist elements of each of our two dominant political parties. Could you talk about patriotism, what it means to you, why it's important? Yeah,
1: absolutely, and you know, and you're absolutely right that patriotism has become almost a partisan or or, or um, ideologically polarizing word, where uh, you know um, older white conservative folks are patriots, and younger um liberals uh like shun the word because they don't want to be associated with an ideology that they don't adhere to and i think that is a travesty it's a shame um the, one of the beauties of our country is that you can hold your own worldview, you can speak about it and defend it and still be considered as american as someone who disagrees with you a hundred percent the problem now is that we that that patriotism is more interpreted to be um uh, a, a, a word for those who agree with our worldview and excludes those who see the world differently. And that's, um, again, that's, that's a shame. Um, for me, patriotism is simply a principled love of country. And principled is the operative word here and not love. There's a kind of uncritical love of country and uncritical patriotism that says, even if the United States is hypocrites, even if the United States has fallen short to criticize it is unacceptable because um, this is the only country you have. This is the nation um, that you belong to. And so love is paramount. And love means that you um, you don't hold it accountable when it falls short or you don't point out its flaws. I don't believe in that kind of patriotism. I think that kind of patriotism can actually be damaging. Instead, I believe in a principled love of country, which is to say that you love the country so much that when it falls short of the principles upon which it was founded, that it is your duty as a citizen, your duty as a patriot, to hold the nation accountable for being in breach of, of its promises. And that kind of critical patriotism, I think, um, not only points to the things that need addressing in our society, but also gives us a vision for the kind of country that we want um, and, and with a recognition that we're not there yet. And so it's it's aspirational. It's the, you know, it, it, there's a reason Lincoln used the word like more perfect union. Um, Because the idea is that you can. You can always be more perfect. There is there's no actual place where more perfect resides. It's always a little bit better than wherever you are, so it's always requiring work, always requiring our commitment, our sacrifice, our forbearance, and and our love, but um, also recognizing that uh, it, it. has not lived up to its its promises and it's our duty to to hold it accountable so that's how i i believe patriotism should be received there's no race to it there's no party to it there's no religion to it um it's uh it's about values and principles and uh and if i think that version of of patriotism is more unifying and uh and inclusive than some of the other distorted versions that are out there
0: you know as you make these points it brings to mind the old Saw from I guess the 1800s, my country right or wrong, and somebody right. said in response, and my mother drunk or sober. I mean, <laughs> right. It gets to a point where it's irrational, and doesn't serve anybody.
1: That's right. Yep. Stephen Decatur said, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, um, our country, or in her intercourse with other nations, may she always be in the right, but our country, right or wrong. And um, that has a kind of nationalistic flavor to it, which is to say it's it's our country, period. And so whether she's right or wrong, it, she's ours, and um, we will do whatever it takes to, to support her and, and sort of not um, – you know, not chastise her to, to the, the the analogy used about mothers, but like a drunk mother should probably be told that her being drunk is not good for the kids, or a drunk father, for that matter, um, doesn't mean you love them less, but it also means that you recognize they're not living up to um, to to what they should the the kind of life they they are called to should be called to live, based on uh, their role as parents So, um it's I, I hope I, that there is a return to that kind of patriotism, but unfortunately. Um, As we've seen in the last decade plus, patriotism is used as a weapon, as a cudgel to beat others over the head with instead of as a um, as a tool to unify us.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about solidarity. It's a term you use and you explore in your book. Solidarity seems to mean a connection among people that's somewhat greater than patriotism, more actionable. How would you explain that? And how do you link that to the term you just brought into the discussion? Nationalism, which seems also contested.
1: Yeah, this is this is um this is where I try to thread the needle a, a little bit. Um so solidarity, depending on the context, means lots of things to different people. To some people, it's directly connected to like labor movements, and others it it's it's uh, has a more superficial meaning of just saying like I I agree with you. I stand in unity with you, but I'm not going to actually do anything to help you. I just want you to know that, hey, I see you. I think what you're doing is great. You know, good luck. Um, The kind of solidarity I'm talking about is the kind that bonds people together over a cause of morality or justice, such that the people who are bonded together, ideally across difference, are willing to sacrifice for one another in order to achieve these moral or principled demands of of government. And um, that kind of solidarity is is resilient, it's inclusive, uh, it's expansive, it's big enough for everyone, but it's very, very difficult to build and really difficult to sustain. It differs from patriotism because patriotism is oriented on the nation state, on the country and it's a it's a tangible thing and so um in in the same way people who are in solidarity over like lower taxes or being pro-life or pro-choice or the environment these are tangible issues that they're that connects them when the issue has been solved then i you know uh, ostensibly that connection breaks up or when the country feels secure or the the country um, doesn't feel threatened then the patriotism Kind of ebbs, and we've seen this based on what happened. The level of patriotism right after wars compared to the level of patriotism, or during and right after wars compared to level of patriotism. Like some years when, when the, the, there's no present threat. Conversely, uh, nationalism is a sort of love of country that is based on the exclusion of other. And so it's almost not a love of country because of who the country is. It's a love of country because you don't like what the, all of the people and all of the things the country isn't. So it's a country founded on the anti-other instead of a country and instead of love of country founded on, um, on who the country is, which I believe is, is more patriotism. So the way solidarity interacts with these two things is solidarity in, in America is not just a love of country because of it's a nation state and it is not a love of country that is born out of being so thankful that we're not another country but it's a love of country based on the values upon which this country was founded again freedom equality liberty opportunity prosperity etc and so solidarity that's connected over causes of equality and justice is much thicker than solidarity that's just ground on that's that's uh, founded on country or the exclusion of others. And that is the kind of solidarity I believe is that's the only type that will help us um, push the nation nation to be closer to its professed ideals, because the ideals are the energy are the motor for this kind of national solidarity I'm talking about, and not just the existence of the country or the existence of threats to the country. And that distinction I think is is incredibly important, but also like central to the idea of um, fulfilling the
0: promise of the country. Let's dig in a little more on some of the points you made. You talk about nationalism being based on excluding others. Could it also be based upon a distinct distinguishing one's country from others? Does that have to be exclusive or negative? Uh, No, that's a fair point. Um, so, so yeah, that distinction is, um, it's, it's national
1: nationalism requires an other, it requires something else that's not, the thing you're, um, or, or the state you're sort of adhered to. So, um, and you're right, it doesn't always have to be negative. You can you can be very nationalistic uh, and and not despise other countries or respect other countries' right to exist and right to sort of seek their security interests. Um, the the problem there is, or at least as I see it, and, and not a sort of practical problem, but a philosophical problem, is that distinction requires there be something different in order for the distinction to be evident and what i'm saying is uh, a love that is inward focusing and value centered rather than a an identity that requires identifying other people that are not like you um, or that are different from you is um, the former i think is more enduring and more powerful than the latter uh, and so i, I don't want to make it sound like nationalism is inherently bad or inherently evil it should be wiped out um, I, but, but I do recognize that nationalism is more, much more easily weaponized um, uh, against others than the kind of solidarity that I'm talking about. Because of that, that distinction um, can often lead to like group conflict and and all these other sociological theories that um, explain why nations go to war, why nations are um, resolve their differences in ways that uh, that often harm citizens of both countries.
0: It's very interesting. The dueling nationalisms that Putin and Zelensky have hearkened to in the Russian attack mm-hmm. on Ukraine. You have in both cases uh, a differing view of nationalism expressly laid out. In the case of Putin, he brings a history that would have faced the existence of Ukraine separate from Russia. Uh, and in the case of Zelensky, he was able to call upon a very clear sense of national Uh, understanding that would prompt people to give their lives in the most grievous of circumstances and something that Putin clearly didn't see coming. At least I think that I'm not reading his mind, I'm just looking at what's happening. What's your reaction? Yeah, I think that's right. And
1: I think um, this sort of goes to your previous point that nationalism isn't always inherently bad, Um, that it can be marshaled in defense of a nation. Um, which is, I think, what we're seeing in, in Ukraine. So I think these are competing versions of nationalism we're seeing between Russia and Ukraine. Russia's conception of nationalism is expansive and it doesn't respect the sovereignty of other nations. Uh, in fact, it, it doesn't recognize that sovereignty because it insists that those nations are actually part of the real Russia or the Russian empire. Uh, and so it sees it as its nationalistic duty to expand in order to incorporate all of the people it considers to be part of its nation. I mean, part of the I, the definition of nationalism is that the nation and the state are one, which is to say that the peoples, which comprise the nation wherever they are, and the geopolitical entity we call the state are, are one in the same, uh, or the, the, the objective is to make them one in the same. So Putin's expansionism, um, he sees it as basically reclaiming Russian peoples back to mother Russia. Um, And if that means infringing on the sovereignty of Ukraine or Crimea or Estonia or Georgia or, or, uh, you know, these different places, then so be it. That's that's what nationalism requires. Conversely, uh, the kind of nationalism we're seeing in Ukraine, which I think is closer to patriotism, is essentially uh, uh, um, demanding that its borders be respected. And he's calling on Ukrainians love of country. in order to compel them to fight when they're, though they're overmatched and, and um, you know, beset on all sides by Russian forces. And so there's sort of a a, a Ukrainian nationalism seeking to protect its sovereignty and protect its identity um, up against a Russian nationalism that insists on disrespecting other nations' sovereignty because it views the, those nations' peoples as being Russian or, or um, subject to, to the Russian state and uh and though that th- that is again part of the dangers of nationalism is that it can excuse conflict um in ways that uh patriotism or solidarity wouldn't seek to to uh, engage in on the first place in the first place
0: i was very interested to read a series of pieces lately on robert mcnamara who's the subject of a new book by his son a memoir and mcnamara of course is known as the tragic figure who Almost personifies the errors of conception and execution in Vietnam. Mm. And something that he came around to, that is the elder McNamara before his death. And here was a man who used statistics for everything, who measured the stats of the German of the bombings of Germany in the Second World War to make preparations, thinking that we could do the same in effect. Uh, in Vietnam, and a lot of stuff we consider madness. That was often taken from managerial industry at the time that he was part of. But he said that the great error he came to understand was that we did not, the United States decision makers, comprehend the history and nationalism that was at work in Vietnam. And I, I raise this because to the extent the United States takes the term nationalism and the concept off the table, I wonder if that's a factor in our incapacity on various issues, not just Vietnam, but also Iraq, Afghanistan, and so on. How do you think about that? Yeah, so I actually see these um, th- these related to the question
1: of identity, and, and again, sort of the ways that a nation, when a nation state feels its identity is threatened, it's, it is willing to go to lengths maybe even more links to defend itself than if it was attacked physically or sanctioned economically. And so what I mean by this is when we discount or don't account for um, a people's strong sense of identity and connection to their country, um, then we uh, assess war to be a, um, basically a contest of like equipment and strategy. And that the, the side with the better equipment the better strategy the better execution wins the war and thus their interests get fulfilled and the losing side doesn't get their way but in nations like vietnam and afghanistan they weren't fighting um to, to win a war to secure particular national security interests especially externally they were fighting because they felt like their their culture their identity their place had been attacked And there's really no negotiating away place using the same strategy as you would when you're talking about equipment and resources and, and, and again, strategy. So uh, this is sort of a convoluted way of saying that um, international relations scholars are are thinking more about the role of national identity in determining a nation's actions, and they, they call this ontological security, which is basically when a nation's sense of itself is, feel stable and secure, that nation um, is is, uh, is is in a good place. But when that stability and security of their sense of self is attacked, that there's almost no links to which they will go to not re- reclaim that identity. Um, this is why uh, we will, you know, the Taliban, even though they got their butts kicked up and down Afghanistan, 20 years later, they're back in charge of Afghanistan because reaffirming who they who they were to themselves and their place in that country there's no amount of money or bombs that are going to knock that their them away from their identity and so our concept of victory in these kinds of places whether it's vietnam or afghanistan or other places has to be connected or has to account for people's insistence on uh, reaffirming their national identity and not just a heavy focus on winning the the battle of, um, of strategy and, and equipment. And, and look, the last point I'll make on this is, you know, the, the arguably the longest war in our nation's history is the war in Afghanistan from 2001 until, or I'm sorry, from two, yeah 2001 until this year, um, or last year when, when Biden pulled out. So 20 years. And um, if you look at what the terrorists uh, attacked on 9-11, It was the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, and I think the Flight 93 was headed to either the Capitol or the White House. And if you look at the things that give us our identity as a superpower, as as America, it's our democracy, our military and our economy. And so the fact that they struck a symbol of our economy, the World Trade Center, the symbol of our military prowess in the Pentagon and tried to strike the symbol of our democracy in the Capitol or the White House, also tells it helps explain why we were willing to spend 20 years in Afghanistan um, as because it was an attempt to reclaim part of our identity that was damaged during 9-11. It wasn't just about terrorist base camps or bad actors. It was about displaying to the world that uh, we are who we say we are and we will go to any lengths to to prove it so the the role of identity and why nation states do the things they do whether it's kim jong-un or or others um, is really really important and can't be explained in you know just by following military doctrine
0: you talk in your book and of course you lived this through your service for the country and the military and otherwise, you talk about national service of some type. And I couldn't help but reflect reading that of two things. One was William James, who at the turn of the 20th century, wanted to bring the kind of solidarity you refer to in peacetime through what he called the moral equivalent of war, hopefully not having to wait for war to accomplish that. Right. Well, let's start with that and and the second thing is of course when you look at the polarization in Washington uh, one of the many factors and there are many is the absence of military service in the yeah. I think the executive branch and the Congress that's, that's right. missing a, a part of identity is simply missing and then when you combine that with, our sort of holiday from history under both political parties, not a partisan matter, it's an American matter for the past 30 years, basically, Uh, we find ourselves in a very precarious, uncertain place. How do you react to that?
1: Yeah. um, So national service, I think, is so central um, to a well-functioning society not because of the outcome of that service. It's not because we'll have cleaner highways or you know, better drinking water or more tutoring for, for poor kids, um, but it's, it's that we, National Service puts us in places with Americans we would never meet otherwise, who are different from us, from different places than us, and brings us together to work towards a shared goal. And in this way, we get to know one another in ways that don't happen uh, naturally, given how self-segregated we are by race and class and, and other things. So the biggest the biggest benefit, as I see it, from national service is that it takes a nation of three hundred and thirty million people and forces us to get to know one another and work together to to achieve something for the good of the country. And admittedly, I'm biased because as you know, because of my military service. But I have friends from Iowa and Los Angeles and Louisiana and, you know, Maine that I never would have met anywhere else on the planet um, in, in any other instance of moving moving around the country, except for the fact that we were on a ship together for seven months in the Arabian Gulf. And because of that connection, when someone tells me something about Hispanics or someone tells me something about, you know, um, white voters in, in the Rust Belt or, or um, Asian Americans from, you know, Washington State, uh, I can. I am resilient to any stereotyping because I served alongside these Americans. And I know what kind of country that they want. And I know that our vision for the country, while it may not be exactly synonymous, are pointed in the same direction. We're guided by the same North Star on this. So the, the importance of national service is that it just compels us to get to know one another and realize how connected we are and what we want out of our country at the very base levels. Um, but then to your point uh, about like the role, the, the lack of military service in Congress, I think you're right, and, and I, I think scholars have studied this, that that contributes to the hyperpartisan nature of our politics today. Um, because a lot of folks serving in Congress probably have never made friendship with anyone, any deep, sustained friendships with people beyond their congressional district or beyond their part of the state. And so... Um, when you don't have exposure to folks, when you don't have relationships with folks who are different from you, then it's easy, it's easy to, to de- allow those groups to be demonized, to allow those groups to be um, pointed at as the reason why your district doesn't have the jobs they do or why your country doesn't look like the way you think it should look. You just point to the other side and say it's their fault. And um, the, the, again, that lack of, of service to, to country that among sitting congressmen and women, absolutely contributes to um, the Their their willingness or their susceptibility to divisive appeals, and then exploiting those divisive of divisive appeals to win elections. So, uh, this is not to say that if everyone served in the military, they would um, you know Congress would start working um, because during the draft it wasn't like Congress was a well-oiled machine. Even though lots of people served, but it is to say that the better we get to know one another, um, I think that uh, it paves the way towards creating a more functional government and a more responsive democracy.
0: So let's say that the spirit of history came to you and said, "Forget how we're going to do this, Theodore Johnson. But you are president. You got a year to do big stuff. What do you do?"
1: Wow. Um, yeah, it's it, it's tough. So so, but here's what I would say. Um, one is that while a, a president can be a kind of um, a, a leader for the country in, in terms of like principle and morality, especially in their rhetoric and their example, um, they very rarely, is that the thing that compels the country to be a better version of itself. Instead, the best presidents have often um, either put in new laws or, or strengthen institutions or adhere to uh, the checks and balances of institutions um, in a way that aligns to our principles. and then they're they're respected because they they sort of did the hard job and make tough decisions within the the um the, the expanse of of government or within the existing powers of government. So what I would do is try to leverage public policy so that we structure our nation to be one that hews more closely to our principle instead of trying to sort of, Appeal to 330 million people's hearts and minds, and help you know, ask them to be better people in their day-to-day lives, which I, I think is absolutely important. So, uh, kind of a long way of saying that I believe if I if I was president, um, I believe the role is to use public policy to to create the more perfect union, and I believe the way to do that is to be hard on institutions and soft on people. And so, I, what I would do is strengthen our d- democratic institutions. Um, I would make Congress more representative. I would make voting easier and and protected. Um, and I would and, and inclusive. and I would ensure that um, the the judiciary, that its decisions, its its holdings are enforced at the local state and federal level, which is to say, I would make sure that our government does what the Constitution says it should do, and that we it is structured in a way that all people who are citizens in this country, get to participate in that structured constitutional democracy um, to the fullest extent so that it, um, we can be assured that our government does what the promise of America says, what the declaration says, which is to operate um, with the consent of the governed. That would be my thing. It would be mostly institutional, mostly about democratic processes and systems, and it would be across all three branches of government, certainly the executive and the legislative, to um, foster attitudes and behaviors that broaden the expanse of democracy, Uh, you know, who knows how successful such an endeavor would ever be.
0: Let's say that we took your book and people said, you know what, this is our handbook to get things right, to reinvent ourselves as we've done before for the next phase. How do we know when we've succeeded?
1: Mm. Yeah, we will. We will know when we succeeded because the folks that have usually been marginalized in our society are beginning to prosper. Um, It doesn't mean that that racism is gone. It doesn't mean that poverty no longer exists, Um, but what it does mean is that when those things rear their faces, um, that a multiracial, multi-class coalition of people come together to do what they can do to mitigate the harms of racism, of poverty, economic inequality etc um right now what we have are are people that sort of dig into their positions and to their um their own groups their own identity groups frankly and uh try to secure as much of democracy for themselves instead of trying to expand the reach of democracy to include others who are not like them um so this means uh, you know to put it to make it like very tangible this means that when a global pandemic enters the United States, that instead of having partisan bickering around whether one should wear a mask or whether stores should close or whether six feet apart is enough or whether um, you know, we should get the vaccine or not, we would have seen a nation that came together, supported first responders, showed compassion to others, and um, you know did the equivalent of planting victory gardens during World War II uh, to Create a a moment of solidarity, a, a multiracial, again, multi-class coalition of people to recover from the pandemic instead of using the pandemic
0: as a way to score political points for um for certain officials. Ted Johnson, we have a number of younger listeners, and though I think these issues will interest everyone, they may particularly pique their attention. Uh, One is given that we're in a time of what's likely to be a lot of tumult. We have the international scene where we're being reminded that while we're an international leader, we're also hostage to events and we're a little rusty at being in that position, understandably, after 30 years of relative peace. We've also got at home tremendous foreseeable turbulence. The inflation is likely an early warning that after more than a decade of both the legacy parties building up assets and the stock market, real estate and so on, there's going to be a big adjustment and a lot of folks are going to be affected. So if you're a young person thinking, how can I help along the lines that Mr. Johnson put in his book, would you say to them go into elective politics or would you say in this kind of moment, it's better to serve from the outside?
1: Yeah, I I would say um, to find your place um, in society, to sort of find the area that feels most comfortable to you, that leverages your talents and interests, and just do that thing really, really well, Um, and to do it from a place of like of compassion for others or and from a principled place. Um, And so, for some folks, um, you know, I, I would never just sort of offer like that more people should should go into elective politics because elective politics requires a very particular skill set and um, everyone's not cut out for that kind of billing, be willing to um, be pragmatic and, and to compromise and and uh find agreement etc um some folks are more um suited to activism and grassroots mobilization um to sort of get organizing and getting people together to demand you know new zoning laws or fill potholes or you know build a new school or something like that so i would say leverage your talents but do so with civic virtue in mind, um, that you're not doing this just so that you and your family can get ahead. You're not doing this so that you can hoard more of the American dream for yourself, but that you should be leveraging your talents with civic virtues such that the society is improved because of your participation in it, that you're additive. To a well-functioning society, and not trying to capitalize on society structure stru- structures to benefit your, yourselves, you know, for individual benefit. Um, this is kind of an, an unsatisfying answer. It'd be much easier for me to say, everyone go run for office, um, or um or everyone, you know, found a nonprofit that. That pursues the end of climate change and the end of racism and the and you know whatever your cause is, but the reality is a nation as large as large as ours requires all of us to be doing the things that we're good at. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt said um, that we should um, take our talents and basically spend our talents until there's nothing left, and he he finishes the speech up by saying spend and be spent. And that's how you'll know that you had a life well lived. So whatever your talents are, spend all of them in a principled way with civic virtue in mind, in whatever capacity in whatever industry, et cetera, that, um, that leverages your the, the qualities and talents you bring.
0: Are there significant matters relating to public life, to the country, to government, to law, to military, to politics, any of those about which you've changed your mind over time?
1: Um. Huh. Yeah, I, you know, I've written that I didn't vote for the first time until I was 33 um, because uh, I just didn't believe that voting was going to change anything, that 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 uh, government was um, responsive to the, the will of the people. Um, and I, I've changed my mind about the importance of, of of government. I used to excuse it by saying I serve in the military then you know I, I'm doing my duty as a citizen uh, voting's not gonna add anything to it um, so I think I was wrong about the power of voting and um, and and just the importance of of doing so at the state local and 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 federal level and not just um, uh, presidential elections but the other thing which is less tangible is um, I underestimated or discounted the role of compassion for others in creating the kind of nation that we hope to be. Um, And, you know, I have heard uh, folks on both sides of the aisle say that, you know, those 74 million people that voted for Donald Trump are the reason why our country is broken or those 81 million people who voted for Joe Biden are the reason why our country is broken. And I'm of the view that um, if you believe that 50% of the country is an existential threat to democracy, then you don't believe in democracy or America. Um, you have to believe in um, in the the good faith of the other side. That the vast majority of folks, even if they see things differently than you, want the kind of country that that we all want. So, I I, I was wrong about the the importance of, of of something tangible like voting, and I was also wrong. Um, about like the importance of compassion for others and that seeing that as a strength of our uh, society instead of um you know something that that that's only for the weak or for for folks that aren't
0: willing to fight for um, for principle. You know your point about the view of other voters really hits home with me as a political independent, uh, most of the country, rather a strong plurality, as you know is independent, you've got about 30%, give or take, goes up and down of both the legacy parties, Democrats and Republicans. But one thing I often say to people when they go off attacking uh, the other side and think that's sufficient for a vote, it hardly seems fair for the system to spit up, and I guess that shows my view, only two alternatives, and then to damn you if you don't pick one of them. It's like, where in the world have we gotten accustomed to that as making sense?
1: I absolutely agree. Um, the The idea that you know you pick red or blue, and even if you only agree with fifty one percent of of the red side, you have no option but to vote that side. Um, or if the issue that is most important to you, you agree with one party, but on all the other issues, you hold more nuanced views you're sort of an orphan you're you're left without a home i think that's a bad way to, to run a, a democracy and i'll be honest with you um you know i've got a number of political science friends who've dug into this and our two party two party politics especially when they are as polarized as they are now Um, actively undermines our ability to to have a good, efficient democracy. So I would love to see another party. I would love to see things like multi-member districts or growth in the size of Congress, or the um, uh, elections where the top two vote getters, no matter what party they belong to, are, are in the runoff or ranked choice voting. Like a number of these tweaks to our democracy, that get us out of just looking for the R or the D beside someone's name, and then just voting for them based on partisan identity instead of on the issues, or, and, uh, and then reducing our agency to choosing between two teams instead of being able to have a fuller expression of, of, our, of our views. Uh, so uh, two-party politics is, is uh, this version of it is no good for, for our current state. Um. So here's the hoping for some of those tweaks and more principled politicians that can hold more nuanced views that allow them to buck the party line when their conscience uh, demands it.
0: Here, here. And Claire Booth Luce, the legendary 20th century journalist and politician playwright, famously instructed President Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately recalled and encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your sentence to be?
1: Uh, wow, um, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure. I think you know it would be um, a, a man who was an optimist about America, a realist about racism, and um, and a pragmatist about the way to close the gap between uh, who we want to be and and who we are. Um, And that's probably too many words for a tombstone, but I I think that kind of captures where my heart is.
0: Well, thank you, Theodore R. Johnson. It's been a delight to be with you today, and congratulations on your important book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. It's highly readable, it's provocative, and it's a book that ought to be a manual for citizens. And I understand, uh, Ted Johnson, that you are open to people writing in after they bought the book and you'd be willing to inscribe book plates.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, if, you'd, if you'd like a, a signed book plate, please buy the book and, uh, and contact the show, and I will be more than happy to get uh, as many as you'd like out to you
0: as soon as possible. Thank you, Theodore R. Johnson, and thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics. Follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.